buscado un mejor destino para ti lo que viniera de ti. Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number six for Sunday, June 7th, 2013. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger. And we are the producer-director extraordinaire of the documentary film Identifying Nelson Buscando a Roberto. This week, again, we have an extra special guest, my mom. She's not just my mom, but she's the author of Missing Mila, Finding Family, an International Adoption in the Shadow of the Salvadoran Civil War. She is a professor of German emerita who taught at Wellesley College from 1971 all the way to 2010. I'm very, very pleased to introduce the one and only Margaret Ward. Thank you, Nelson. <laughs> well, thanks for having, uh, thanks for being here again with us. Um, we are recording this, uh, as we said last time, last week, over Memorial Day weekend. The first part of this interview, we talked about uh, my mother's book, Missing Mila, Finding Family, and what she went through to write it. This week, we are going to focus more on the history of El Salvador and what you have learned. Mm -hmm as you did the research. And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on is because I know in researching the story, you've learned so much about the history of El Salvador. And this is such a complicated topic that I thought it would be good to give mm -hmm. our audience perhaps a brief overview of what was happening in El Salvador at the time. Okay. Um, I'm actually going to fool you in my answer. And I I sort of do that in the book as well. Um, I think when you have civil wars and you have conflicts uh, like this, both in an international setting but in terms of the, the setting in the country, it's really important to, to understand what was happening before that led to, to the civil war. And so the first historical moment that I mention in my book is 1932. Right? This is... 50 years before, uh, you know, the time period that we're dealing with. But there was a uh, terrible conflict at that time in El Salvador, a very repressive government, and there was a, 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 mass, a, a major massacre of particularly indigenous people. And um, that time period for anybody who, who really does study and is a specialist in, in the history of El Salvador, you can't not sort of mention that particular conflict, which then simmers below the surface, is almost not even mentioned, but is one of the reasons why the FML, FMLN in the 1980s takes on the name of one of the martyrs from that time period. So uh, I'm thinking about other conflicts today that we don't fully understand. And very often it's because we don't understand the pre-war or, you know, what went before. You know, we don't, we don't understand the conflict now very well and we don't understand what led up to it. I mean, you could look at our civil war and say, you can't start with the 1860s, you have to think about the whole history of the country, and you know, so so it's it is difficult to 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 process. Okay, go back to the original question, um, the 1980s. Um, still, very authoritarian, very repressive governments 
when elections took place, they were very often, um, the results were fraudulent. We had people put into the position of, of president who relied on the military to repress any dissent. So you had falsified elections and oppressive authoritarian regimes repeatedly, but also economic an economic situation where a very small group of people, what you would call an oligarchy, controlled the wealth and the economic levers of power. And then you have the large majority of the of the people very poor, and many people who, for economic reasons, had left El Salvador, crossed the border into Honduras in order to eke out a living. And so those are all factors that play into the period before the revolutionary groups of the late 1970s begin in this part of the world to try to make a change. And so, you know, there's a lot of backdrop that I think one also needs to understand, even though one can't go into great detail. You know, it isn't just, oh, all of a sudden there's a war. There's a lot that has happened before you get to open conflict. And, and the, a lot of the countries in Central America, the term banana republic comes from the region and the era where there were a lot of very unstable military regimes that were guarding um, basically the wealth of the uh, landowners in these agrarian societies. Right. I think certainly Honduras is your example par excellence of the so-called banana republic, where they, indeed bananas was a very important crop and united fruit and so forth was, you know, the power behind everything. In El Salvador, my understanding is that it wasn't that they don't do any bananas, but coffee, you know, there's an entire book on coffee that I read on the history of the coffee industry and the importance of the international prices and all the kinds of crises that went on in, in coffee. So coffee was very important. Um, cotton, it used to be indigo, but, you know, cotton, okay. But coffee, I think, was probably more important than bananas. But you had a very small group who held the, the levers of power. There is kind of the mythology of the 14 families. It's not really 14. And you have a very strong relationship between those uh, people in economic power and the military. Many of the military are being trained in the United States. Well, at that time, it was located in Panama called the School of the Americas. It still exists today under a different name, WINSEC. Um, and so many of the people in Central America, whether you're talking about Arias Montt, who was president in this same time period in Guatemala, uh, or some of the, the generals or the colonels who, who were involved in massacres and crimes during these conflicts in Central America during the 1980s, they were being trained by United States forces and the CIA and so forth. So, you know, you need to get kind of get into this and, and, and understand that um, it's, I'm kind of changing gears. Uh, Nelson wants to get a word in edgewise. I, I wanted to, I, I think I wanted to help you with changing gears. Um, it's a civ civil war um, that had long roots in, in this economic inequality. 
but it took place in the context of the Cold War that's right. and, and anti-communism and what that meant, right? Yeah, and, and that's really where I was going to go. So you've really helped me, John. I think that for North Americans, particularly for uh, you know, citizens of the United States, we tend to see this whole time period in that Cold War context. And this is where, in, in working with this material, which was somewhat unfamiliar to me, it helped me that I was a specialist in German studies because I had worked on German history, particularly post-war. I did a lot of work on post-war literature and culture, and I had done a lot of work in the former East Germany. I was, I was very, I, I lived in Berlin back in 1959 as an exchange student. I understood a lot about the Cold War setting in which we then came to understand conflicts like this one in El Salvador in the 1980s. Or, or not understand. <laughs> well, not understand, because the Cold War context was artificially imposed on something that was really an internal conflict. It didn't mean that some of the people who were engaging in rebelling against these repressive regimes weren't looking to uh, models coming from socialism or something, but the idea that this was all the Soviet Union, and we, we saw whether it was in Africa or Central America, everything was like a proxy war in the larger Cold War uh, with the Soviet Union, you know, United States versus the Soviet Union. And I think under the um, Reagan administration, again, right in this time period, 1980 on, it was particularly blatant that that's the way everything was interpreted. And so we didn't try to understand the internal conflict. We just simply saw, oh, we're supporting this government that is fighting against communists. You know, I mean, it's a total black and white simplification and placing a very complicated, long conflict within a country, within a, this international picture. Easy for people to grasp, but I think misguided. Really and, misguided. And, and it's really a place, El Salvador is a place where the Reagan administration drew a hard line. And, and you know, after the fall of Nicaragua um, or the revolution in Nicaragua, they, they said it's going to stop here and, in fact, we'll roll it back from here. Well, we get the, the domino theory being applied in Central America just the way it was used in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam era. So you get the same kind of argumentation. Okay, you know, Nicaragua's fallen, you know, we have Cuba, Nicaragua. But each one of these conflicts was also different and the, con the context, you know, totally different. I think one of the reasons that, that North Americans don't know as much or, um, is because a lot of the fallout from Vietnam meant that we weren't, the public wasn't behind putting troops in Central America or South America for any of these conflicts. So a lot of the things that were done were done without American losses, North American losses, and, and done covertly. And so I, I think that has a lot to do with why today the term was, the phrase was used a lot. And I think is an important phrase in, in Central America. There isn't a historical memory or, or there's a lot of work that needs to be done to sort of correct the historical memory of what happened. I agree. I think um, despite the fact that these countries are geographically very close to us, we didn't have the kinds of communications that we have now. 
there were people who were informed, but I think the public at large was not very well informed. And there was a a sense of, you know, indeed, you don't want boots on the ground. And we're going through this again, right? You know, sort of saying, well, what can we do about Syria, but we don't want boots on the ground? <laughs> you know? um, so... If you're not experiencing losses of your own, you know, you're not putting your sons and daughters in harm's way, or at least you don't know about it, and the involvement of your government is, for the most part, hidden. So, you know, today we talk about Iran-Contra, but we didn't know about it at the moment that this was happening. Mm -hmm. Certainly, when Tom and I went to Honduras in 1983 to adopt Nelson, we actually met a, you know, a social event, a pilot who, who mentioned, of course, he was flying over there to El Salvador and, you know, there was stuff going on. Uh, but this wasn't sort of, I didn't even really register what that meant, that we were in, involved. But of course, I had a friend who said to me recently, yes, but when I was in the 1980s doing some research in Germany, in East Germany, they were reading the congressional record and said, you know, why are you, you know, worrying about this or that? Why are you not paying attention to what's going on in Central America? And they were reading the congressional record and said, you know, see what's happening. I mean, Congress would be constantly approving these uh, expenditures for military hardware helicopters and so forth to be provided to the to the government in El Salvador which was then using them among other things to transport children who were being abducted from their peasant parents up in firefights in in the north we just didn't put that all together well in in fact um but somebody somewhere knew it you know you, i mean you could find these things out and there was always this well they have to be improving on humans human rights and then they would have some sort of vote someone would come in and say well they're doing a better job on human rights and then they would approve the congress would approve the the military aid so i have a question i mean we've been yeah. talking a lot about the history yeah. and the specifics of what happened mm-hmm. but how did it feel for you to be in the middle of that, like at the time, and mm-hmm. you, you are saying you really didn't know any, a lot about what was happening, and then to years later when you're doing the research to find out all this stuff that happened literally under your nose, mm-hmm. what was that realization like for you? Well, I try in the book to have the various levels of of narrating something, but also then having some passages where that's reflective, where I do say, well, I have to try to separate what I know now from what I knew then and ask myself, well, why didn't I know that then? Uh, So that was important to me. I wouldn't say I was shocked. I knew enough. I had some sort of a worldview. I certainly spent a lot of time, as I said, in in, uh, East Germany doing research. I had a, a little bit of a different handle on Cold War conflicts. Uh, I'd worked on plays about Cuba. I mean, you know, I knew I knew some things, but this was a level that I certainly didn't know. And so, yes, I wouldn't say I felt ashamed of myself, but I but I felt, well, I I should have known more. You know, if if you're trying to be a an a well-informed citizen in any day and age, you should care 
to know more than maybe sometimes we're willing to let you know we, we we're willing to take the surface truth <laughs> and not probe I think today with the the modern media we've got a lot better chance of of broadening our views of things and deepening our views and not just taking the the easy the yeah. easy interpretation of conflicts but you're sort of saying it, it's up to us that we oh, have to be so. the active I think so yeah I do yeah. yeah and I don't I have an idea of what what I think informed citizenship should be and I don't think I measure up <laughs> yeah uh, I don't think I measure up but for me, this was, again, part of the process of, of working on this material, um, was thinking through that time period in my own life and you know what I knew, what I didn't know, what maybe I should have known, what I could have known if I'd pursued something a little bit more intent, intensely. And, yeah, so, so sort, of, sort of a level of self-criticism, too, that I hope hopefully will mean something to, to readers. I think also one thing the the book did for me, um, it, well, also visiting El Salvador did for me, is we haven't gone through a civil war since 1860. Um, and unless you're exposed to war trauma, um, it's a little hard to relate, obviously. Um, and, and I think you just have to put yourself in a different mindset when you're considering this story and reading this book. Um, there's a couple of places, I mean, there's a lot of details in the book um, that got me, but there was one in particular where it just sort of, to me, hit home. Um, there was a, a section where you're talking about Nelson's sister, Ava, and how she got her name. Let's see. And let me see if I can find the passage. Okay, so there's a passage in the book where you're speaking with Nelson's biological father, Luis, and he's telling you a story about how dangerous life was for um, for guerrillas. And he says, We participated in many actions around the city and stayed in safe houses with weapon caches. One of our compañeros in our cell was captured, but he did not reveal our hiding place. Mila's first pregnancy was a particularly difficult time for us, one firefight we knew of moved us deeply. Our beloved compa Eva, Elizabeth Ramirez, died after a shootout with government troops in Santa Tecla? Yeah, that's really almost like a suburb of San Salvador. Okay. The guerrillas fought bravely for 11 and a half hours, but when, the fire, when the, they finally ran out of ammunition, they wrote on the walls in their own blood our slogan, FPL, Revolution or Death. Then they committed suicide. They didn't want to be taken alive to be tortured. Someone might reveal the whereabouts of others of us. That one just, when I was reading it, um, that hit me. Because here, Mila, Nelson's mother, was pregnant with her first child, and she would have two more. And based on what she's doing, I mean, all you could just be, a lot of teachers were targeted. You didn't have to be all that politically active to be targeted by a death squad in some cases. But... But what she was doing was extremely dangerous, and um, the stakes were very high, and it wasn't that death squads might come after her, they might come after her whole family. That's right. And, and the story of um, this, you know, the names of each of their children have to do, I believe, have to do with revolutionary figures. Um, and it's just a different context that people were living under that 
for me it was hard it's hard to relate to but here's some exposure to it where it just it's a little like i remember when i saw this the movie argo recently and and the movie one of the opening scenes ben affleck's driving down the street and all of a sudden he sees a body hanging from a crane and and you just you you know it, it hits you like okay um i need to think of this a little differently and and on an emotional level yeah i that's interesting that you bring the film in because one of the things that hit me from time to time this particular episode i bring it up again in chapter in the next chapter where i i'm trying to think through what mila might have been thinking and and what her motivations might have been what her difficulties might have been as a woman in this context and having small children and so forth and placing her her third child and also in great danger in my the process of researching i discovered another um book that that where this particular episode is mentioned and that's where i found out the woman's name was elizabeth ramirez but this was a compañera someone they knew who was functioning in another cell and was killed and then the person for whom nelson roberto was named was also a compañero who they who was killed in in a separate incident later on and they saw these as martyrs of their of their cause and i believe ernesto was named for another he was not named for che guevara he was named for an ernesto who was one of their compañeros now these were always the pseudonyms of the i believe of the of the operatives of the of the people in their group but yes i'm sure there was a an ethos of of having to count on your on your compañeros and compañeras and on each other and of great danger and that's really hard for us to get our minds around because we've never I've never been in that sort of situation and that's why as I try in the following chapter to go through the historical material again and think more deeply about Mila in particular I can only go so far mhm you know you say try to walk in someone else's moccasins but i can't you know I, i have to admit you know it's sort of the shortcoming i have to admit there are things maybe i should have known or should have tried to find out at a certain point in this story way back when that i didn't and now as i write this and i look and i know some more i i reflect about my own person and you know what why i didn't know but as i think about mila i also have that sort of reflective moment where i realize you know i'm not she i can th- try to think her through but i can't be her and no i really can't walk in her moccasins i i have no idea what that must have been like mm-hmm. to live in that country at that time under those conditions with those dangers And i have no idea what i would have in fact this instance happened well before several years before the war so this you know this yes. is the way people lived this is the threat they lived under um it was interesting reading in your book about when you did some of your research and you would go through the old newspapers and just the amount of uh reports in the newspaper of families looking for people of aid agencies looking for people i remember that left quite an impression on you yes it did and and the photographs of the of people who were missing that also seemed to me to be sort of an interesting to read the newspapers and to see that on the one hand there would be advertisements 
trying to recruit young men in particular to, to join the armed forces. And in the same page, there would be photographs of young people who were missing, whose parents or where uh, uh, some sort of a human rights organizations was saying, we're trying to find out about what happened to these people, you know, right next to each other yeah. in the paper. It, it's a little bit like when we were in El Salvador in March of 2011, mm -hmm. during the day of the disappeared, the president of the country, uh, Funes, yeah. was on stage giving his speech and to his left, was the head of the armed guard, you know, sort of uh, our secret service, mm -hmm. head of the military standing guard. And then next to him on on the right side was the... Um, Suyapa Serrano, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and her brother and representing the families of the disappeared. And even, you know, we as we were looking at the film, at the footage, there's this moment where they have... The, the crew's family and in the backdrop is the, the military during the national anthem. Mm -hmm. And you get a lot of these juxtapositions between the two different sides. And I think it's one of the issues, I mean, it can broaden this out. We, we've certainly seen in recent months and in particular recent weeks what's been happening with the very brave process going on in Guatemala where a former president has actually been brought to court for accused of genocide, particularly of indigenous people in Guatemala. And convicted. Back at the time, in the same time period, 1981-82, who were massacred by the military. Yet you have a person who's president in Guatemala right now who represents that you know, military kind of presidency, someone who is, you know, trained in the in the the same mold. And so you have sort of a judiciary that is, you know, doing some absolutely unprecedented kinds of things, but there are other forces still at work. And I think even in El Salvador, while you have since two thousand nine a president and vice president uh, who come from the now FMLN party, so they're a legitimate political party, and they had a majority in the legislature, you have a judiciary and a military situation which still is preventing some of the things being brought to any kind of a legal resolution. So that Probuskida is taking these cases of disappearance where they want to try to get records from the military to be opened so they can be resolved. The only way to begin to, you know, get a little handle on this is to take cases to the Inter-American Commission and then the Inter-American Court on Human Rights. And the Serrano case was the first one that where they won this court case, and that was the reason why El Salvador had to have a day that recognized the disappeared children. So that's only been going on since 2007. It's a slow process, and it seems like even though in one part of the government you have maybe someone from what was the left in this civil war, there are other people in power and other parts of the, I think in particular the judiciary in El Salvador has not changed very much. 
and what's happening in Guatemala, as fraught as it is, has certainly not been possible in El Salvador. I mean, you know, yet. And it's, I think it's important for a North American audience um, to understand, again, some differences between growing up in the United States versus growing up in Central America and just what your reality is. Um, because it, it it was it was hard for me to wrap my mind around like we're in 2013, and the majority of the disappeared children disappeared in the very violent early years of the war, which is the early 80s, which mm-hmm. is 30 years ago, and right. and yet um, it's still very real, very present. There was somebody found by Pro Busqueda this week that mm-hmm. was a United States citizen um, that was reunited with his family after 26 years. Um, 28, 28, 28 years. Yeah. And, and there will be many more. <laughs> um, and I, I just, uh, a lot of that has to do with um, political impunity that it takes a long time to heal from a war. There's still a lot of people alive that participated in some of the bad things that happened in the war that have an interest in, you know, not having, having these things be addressed. Um, I don't know, maybe the best way to talk about it is, I, I think it is, is some of these stories that, that uh, we discuss privately, you know, amongst ourselves, that maybe other people aren't as aware of. Like NPR did this great piece on a massacre in Guatemala at Dos Aires, right? Where where they found a survivor um, who didn't even know he was a survivor uh, that lives in Framingham, Massachusetts, <laughs> uh, named Oscar Alfredo Ramirez Castaneda. I ha- can I interrupt? Sure. You know, we heard this story broke just when we were on our way to Chicago last year. A year ago, yeah. A year, this happened May 30th. You know, I brought the newspaper in the airport and showed it at the thing, and there was the picture of, of the young man being reunited with his father, who had, he did not know that he was you know, part of this, um, and he didn't know that his, his father had survived. And he was abducted because somebody in that military group saw him as a potential son. And, and, you know, he was then taken and raised by this military family. And first, first, I mean, it's a horrible massacre, something like... Oh, horrible. Between two and three hundred people were killed by this unit. Yeah. And um, they made everybody in the unit, including the cook kill somebody so that they could never talk about it. Right. And they threw the bodies down the well of the town. And for some reason, they, they let two kids survive. And this is one of the two kids that was raised by one of the people that committed the atrocities family. Um, and the this soldier who took him back home and gave him to his parents then died six months later. And this child who survived ended up growing up thinking the soldier was his dad and he died a war hero. And 20 or 30 years later, he gets a phone call, right? Yes, and finds out that his his father is really a, a poor peasant who's one of the few people in the village who survived and that his mother and all his siblings were massacred. Yeah, it's an extraordinary story. His father had been out tending field that day and he wasn't right. there. Yeah. The, the other thing is that because of these two children who were abducted that has that have survived mm-hmm. that has enabled again the judiciary in Guatemala to prosecute 
some of the people responsible for that massacre. So again, it had a legal because aspect. Literally. It has there's this whole personal story which is just heartrending and must be very difficult for the young man to bend his mind around the person that he had thought of as his father and as a hero for all these years it wasn't his father at all. In fact, he had participated in this massacre. But the other side of it is that it enabled them to to actually convict somebody uh, so that impunity, that impunity, that, you know, was broken. It, it's, it's an amazing mm-hmm. story. Because literally, know, you, you bring up a good point there about having to wrap your mind around these... Identity th- issues. These identity issues, these issues of war, and you know, what, you know, this is, this is a man who's identity, I guess, of family has just been turned upside down. And that's something that hopefully we'll be able to talk more about on on the podcast with other uh, disappeared children, people who have been through this, because I think that part is sometimes the hardest thing to deal with, because it's, it's your worldview, it's everything that you've known growing up has now been turned on its head, and you're left with the question of, what do I do with this? I'd love to ask you, Nelson, one of the things that was so interesting about the article of the man from Guatemala was that literally his DNA is legal evidence. He's the son of a farmer who survived the massacre, and yet he was found being raised by a military family. So his DNA, who he is, is evidence of what happened. And I think with all of the disappeared children of El Salvador, this is a commonality, um, just their existence proves that something happened that people don't want to admit. I mean, all the stories are different, and, and it's not that everyone was was swept up by the military, but at the same time, there must be a, a, something you struggle with growing up in America, being an American, and yet, as, as a lot of this information, as you learn your family's story and you form these bonds you know, what, what that's like. Uh, yeah, we're going to discuss it fully in a whole podcast, but I don't know. It'd be interesting to ask you a little bit about it here. <laughs> well, you've provided a great segue for next week's episode. Uh, yeah, it, it is. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you are stuck in the middle. And I think one of the things that we've talked about here, you know, as well as being an informed citizen and looking back at, at history and, and thinking about what did we know, what do we know, what's really, what's interesting to me is that my story runs through the heart. And by looking at the history of what happened to me and my family, you get a better sense of what happened both internally in El Salvador and externally uh, with in relations to U.S. foreign policy. This story that that my mother tells so well in the book sheds light on all these different topics. I think in closing, I wanted to ask you, you know, we've uh, you've been very fortunate to see some of the work that hasn't been that we haven't been able to share widely in regards to the film. Obviously, there's this first eight minute piece, but you've. Mm -hmm seen uh, some very rough drafts, some rough cuts of the next four scenes, which we, we've talked about. What's your overall impression of what we have so far? 
Oh, I love this question. I'm so glad you asked me because I mean, I got really excited when I got to see the, you know this rough footage. There are things that were hard to look at but and hard to listen to. I was thrilled by the interviews that you were able to do with other disappeared children when, while you were in El Salvador. I was particularly moved by the interview you did up there in Chalatenango with uh, the Serrano Cruz sister. I mean, just incredibly moving, but... Again, it was it was also the dialogue, the way you asked the questions and, and, and how she responded. And it, it, it just, I thought, oh, wow. So I'm anxious, like other people, for the film to get done because I would love to have this, you know, more available to, to, to other people. Part of it was hard for me, and I, we talked about that at the time. This, in El Salvador, they have this memorial wall, which you have as a, you know this photograph of the little boy uh, at the with the ball at the at this memorial wall, and the f- rough footage you had of the visit that you made there with uh, Aunt Tita and um, was it Maria, one Maria. of your cousins? Uh, it was the first time that you you know saw your mother's name and then your name on this wall, and there's some voiceover where you're you're speaking about your feelings and talking about your mother and. It threw me back to a sort of an earlier emotional state where I said I couldn't look at it more than once because it was it, for me it was too it was too hard to hear your emotion your feeling for that missing mother you know it was sort of like oh I thought I'd worked that all through you know I wrote this book <laughs> and and I I've I've processed that and that perhaps showed me what you go through, which is you never quite finish. John, this would be my answer for Nelson, which is the identity thing, you never quite fully deal with it or process it. I mean, you live with it, but it doesn't really fully go away. You know, some of the dilemmas, some of the emotions are probably with you for the rest of your life. You know, I think you do you do fabulously and have since you were 16. I, I was amazed at how easily you negotiated between these identities or, you know, created this whole cloth out of both of them. But I recognized that it is something that doesn't go away. And so I realized at that moment when I was looking at this rough footage and what it evoked in me was that even though I wrote this book and I think I did a lot of emotional work about being your mother and the other mother and what the other mother who's not present means to you, it's not finished for me either. You know, that, that, that that's still sort of a, it's something I live with. You know, it's it, hard to explain. But, and now in a little bit of retrospect, I'm saying, well, that was probably a good thing for me to learn. But I think there's a, a fabulous, fabulous stuff to come. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how you're going to knit it together because that's the hard part.
I know that from writing the book. Oh, I love the cat in the background. <laughs> Sorry, you have to edit that out. <laughs> well, I think that is a great place to stop that today. Because we, we, while we release this is audio, we're actually seeing each other when we talk to each other. And my cat Houdini, he can't discern that I'm talking to a computer instead of him. So he usually is. Nelson gets to see him every podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's a great place to, to stop today. Um, make sure you check out the show notes. They will have all of the images and links that we talked about in today's show. You can also check out the enhanced version of the podcast. The images pop right up as you're listening, which is fabulous. Subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Just go to the podcast section, click on search, and type in Inside the Journey, and we'll pop right up. And thanks, Margaret, very much for being with us today. This was a great couple of conversations. I enjoyed it. And and congratulations on on, uh, Memorial Day weekend and birthdays and anniversaries. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks a lot. We would really love to hear from you. Uh, Please come and leave us a comment. If you don't, John has said that he's going to shave his head, and we don't (laughs) want that to happen. So please leave some comments. Let us know how we're doing. Facebook slash Identifying Nelson. Or if you have something a little more personal, you can always email podcast at identifyingnelson.com. If you enjoy the show, please pass it on to anyone you think might enjoy it. That's the best way that you can support us and what we're doing. Make sure you turn in, tune in next week where I will be answering John's questions about identity and what it's like living with two of them. That's all the time we have for today. I, I tried to jump the gun today. That's <laughs> you okay. did. That's okay. So, as always, thank you very much. Thank you, Mom, for being here. It was great oh. having you. Yeah. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And John Younger. And cue the music. Actually, Mom, do you want to say it? Cue the music. <laughs> there we go. Para cantar a los vientos. 